funny how? It'd be funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Silver Screen Video. It is I, Jonathan, here with my co-host, Jacob. Jacob, how's it going in New York? And uh, before you answer, New York's a pretty important thing today, because not only do you live there, both things we're discussing are about it. So is the director, who basically bleeds the city of New York, if you cut him. I'm doing good jonathan you know what that that actually wasn't bad right um, that, right it wasn't bad because you you can hit that you can hit that note that he hits and it's funny because like i think every his his system is like every third or fourth word he emphasizes right right yeah it's like a it's like a weird uh yeah he, he like doesn't say the syllables like on time and, and like that is the you know that's the key that you have to get like yeah. But I, I will say, having said that, don't do it again for this episode, <laughs> um, <laughs> guys. Um, as you can tell from from Jacob's uh, impersonation, he just did Christopher Walken is the star of one of the films we're talking about because I am genuinely excited today to be able to talk about Abel Ferrero. Abel Ferrara, almost a guest on the Silver Screen Video Podcast. And by almost, I mean not quite. <laughs> not even uh, close. By almost, we emailed him, and he declined. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, he didn't answer, I don't think. Yeah, no, he didn't answer. But a, gu- a guest we've had in the past was kind enough to forward a thoughtful message we sent along to him. Um, yeah, I- 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 honestly, I'm excited typically to talk about movies in general. And it doesn't matter if it's a director I pick or a director you pick. Sometimes, like, as much as I like them, it's hard to genuinely get excited. I, I don't, I, I tend to avoid talking about directors that I hold very highly because there's no way for me to be, like, not biased. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, that's why we've done a Scorsese episode, but it was a religious trilogy. So we could talk about, like, an actual through line opposed to me just talking about how Scorsese is the greatest living filmmaker. And that's irrefutable. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So anyway, with Abel Ferreira, it is, he's such an interesting dude. Like he is insane. And he's cleaned up a lot and he's sobered up and you know, he lives in Italy and I think Willem Dafoe like lives three doors down from him, which I just love because Willem Dafoe is also another one of my favorite people in, in Hollywood. Always a pleasure to see him pop up in anything. Yeah, what do you think those guys um, are getting up to? Well, they've been making a lot of movies. Willem Dafoe okay. is in a lot of Abel for uh, his late career movies. Um, no, but I now, mean, like on the weekend, like what are Abel Ferrara and Willem Dafoe doing for fun? You know, they dude, I can just imagine like, like Willem is probably painting while Abel Ferrara like maybe sits at the window and drinks coffee and just talks just about madness. I, I don't even know. Right. Um, like, like you got to think one of those eccentric artists. Yeah. You got to think it's nothing crazy anymore. You know, it's not, uh, it's not the eighties anymore. So you got to think they're, 
you know, like painting and like maybe like listening to like some kind of like uh, uh, complicated, like 20th century classical music, you know? Um, yeah. Okay. Well, it, it's interesting because, well, first off, how much do you know about Ava Ferrara? Next to nothing. I, okay. uh, this is, you know, a lot of, uh, uh, hay has been made on this podcast about you kind of filling in some of your art house and foreign blind spots. Abel Ferrara was a complete blind spot for me. Uh, I still have only seen these two of his movies and I don't, uh, really know anything about his career and I enjoyed the movies, but yeah, I don't, I don't know hardly anything about him. This was a major blind spot for me. Well, it's interesting. First off, I'll say like, I am a huge fan and he's a very influential director just on on me and, and what I tend to gravitate towards. But I cannot say I've seen all of his movies. I, I am working my way through his filmography. But if anything, I think that my lack of of like seeing all of his movies or whatever speaks volumes about how great the the like the handful that I've seen. I've probably seen like 10 of his movies, but I mean, I'm going to shoot straight with you. He doesn't make masterpieces. Um, mm-hmm. he, he, even even like I think the two we're going to talk about, I think one of them is a complete masterpiece. But like even if you look at some some of the more exploitative films that he was doing in the seventies, um, they were great. But I mean, one of them was based completely around a video nasty. It was banned in the UK. It was um, it was a very violent film. Another one was like a rape revenge movie. Uh, so he, he has a history of just kind of pulling things together, shooting very cheaply. But I mean, the reason it's interesting is because when you look at, when you look at Hollywood, when you look at directors in the sixties and the seventies, like you got names like Martin Scorsese and Coppola, you know, they were De Palma. They were, they were making movies, low budget movies, making a name for themselves. Then you had like Spike Lee and you had Cassavetes who were like considered the outsiders, but have like highly influential, especially for like um, Cassavetes with Scorsese, but a name that kind of always stayed on the outskirts. And I still believe does not get his due. He deserves today is Abel Ferreira Mm -hmm. because I mean, how honestly, like now we know we've discussed, I know, you know, are obviously well aware of like Coppola and Scorsese and De Palma. But how often did do you remember ever seeing like Ferreira's name come up when you're reading about these guys um, cutting their teeth in New York in the 60s and 70s? I mean, never, honestly. I actually, uh, this is maybe a mark of of against my uh, cinephile bona fides, but um, I I think I th- was I, I think I confused. Uh, do you know the director Adam? Egoyan? I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. I think I thought him and Abel Frar were the same person <laughs> because, like, they both make kind of uh, will dip into, like, genre movies, but are also somehow respected in, like, the art house world, you know? And um, so I, like, I thought they were just two, like, outsider people, and I maybe kind of conflated the two of them. So, so yeah, I really like I've never even really heard of Abel Ferrara like back when I was like um you know beginning to go through and see like the classics of like 
you know, the um, new American cinema in the seventies, like that just never included Abel Ferrara. And I still think it doesn't. I still, I still think it doesn't. The, the, the quote unquote canon does not include Abel Ferrara at this point, you know? Yeah. And, and like I said, I don't, um, I don't think that this guy, you know, everything he does is a masterpiece. He's made, He's made some bad movies, but the reason guys like him appeal to me so much is because they're always committed. Like they're, they're always committed to what they're doing. They have a very, a very specific style. Like if you look at bad Lieutenant, cause today guys we're discussing, I suppose we should have said this before King of New York and bad Lieutenant, which are two of probably his biggest movies. Both of them came within a two year period of each other in 90 and 92. Um, when you, when you look at like something like bad Lieutenant, that is literally a movie that Scorsese would have made in the seventies or early eighties starring Robert De Niro. Mm -hmm. And it's actually one of Scorsese's favorite movies from the nineties. And you can see why, because it deals with a lot of things. Ferreira was somewhat obsessed with Christianity in uh, early in his career and in, in middle of his career. Um, obviously when you start wading into those waters, you're going to deal with things. Scorsese is, is someone he he's obsessed with redemption and religion and what it takes to be a good man, et cetera, et cetera, as we've discussed on here before. And that's very similar waters that Ferreira wades into because he was raised Catholic as well. So you can see a lot of those similarities. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I think the only difference is, um, Ferrara never just, uh, he never really took off, you know, it seems like from, you know, from that early beginning. And also it's, you know, it's a little bit different too. I mean, Scorsese, you know, I think Scorsese has about 15 years on him and, um, or at least 10 years. And, you know, in the seventies when, you know, Martin Scorsese was making these like big movies, like Ferrar was like making like literal porn. I think his first, uh, his first movie was called uh, uh, Nine Lives of a Wet Pussy. <laughs> yes, and uh, he actually had to step into a scene. It starred his girlfriend. <laughs> oh, really? Time. Yes, and he had to step in front of the camera for a scene as well. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's insane. I mean, yeah, it's, uh, you know, so, yeah, he, he, he kind of, I think he started maybe lower, than some of the other, you know, uh, uh, American directors of the seventies, he started, um, at the bottom, closer to the bottom. Uh, and so therefore maybe he didn't rise as high, but obviously, you know, he's still a respected filmmaker and respected by, um, respected by the art house audiences. And I say art house, I guess, I mean, you know, the cinephile community, you know, he's a regular, um, you know, uh, recipient of, or, or regular attendee of like the Cannes Film Festival and stuff. So, I mean, he is, he has gotten his, uh, flowers, so to speak, but, but yeah, never really, never really risen above, you know, um, never really risen above the B picture or, or I should say the independent scene, you know, um, which is probably well, I mean, why he... I hadn't really delved into any of his movies, you know? Well, I mean, he, he, he draws a lot of, and by the way, say talking about Scorsese in the same 
Senate, so I'm not comparing the two clearly, but he does draw a lot of uh, comparison in terms of how they came up to Scorsese because he's Italian, New York born, mm. loves New York, making gritty, like obviously uh, very like taped together productions early in his career. Um, and actually to, to go back to him, yeah, his first, his first film was a porn, but it's funny. I believe this is on Wikipedia as well. If anybody wants to, to look it up, um, he, he, the reason he had to step in front of the scene is because the guy couldn't get an erection. So <laughs> he is quoted as saying it's bad enough paying a guy 200 bucks to fuck your girlfriend, but then he can't get it up. <laughs> so, I mean. The, the dude, the dude is something else. Talk about a guy that lives on like the outskirts of show business and doesn't give a fuck. And that really hurt him. That's, that's the reason he moved to Italy. Right. Because later in his career, I believe the early two thousands, he just couldn't get funding for anything. Mm-hmm. And he's not the easiest guy to work with from what I've read. I, I will say before we get to the movies, something that everyone should do, including yourself, one of the greatest Conan interviews. See, I told you Conan was going to come up. Okay, okay. One of the greatest Conan interviews in the history of his show was with Abel Ferreira. Really? It is six minutes long. It is insane. And I think like three years ago, four years ago, Conan had Willem Dafoe on his show. And obviously he's friends with Ferreira and he's talking about how much he loved that interview. Mm. And he's like, you did the best you could with what you had. <laughs> and in that interview, Conan tells a story. He's like, I'll tell you, it gets even worse because before we started recording and we're about to need him on set, he takes off running down the street <laughs> and we had to chase him down and drag him back in the theater or drag him back in, in 30 rock. Cause they were in New York at the time. I think Jesus. this was 96. Jesus. Um, Dude, he is high as a motherfucker in this interview. <laughs> and it is hilarious. He's talking about how Madonna wanted him to beat up Harvey Keitel and talking about how Harvey Keitel, like it was his idea to be naked and bad lieutenant dancing around. It was absolutely hilarious. Also very awkward. Dennis Leary is sitting next to him, which is also strange because he talks to him a couple of times. It is a phenomenal six-minute interview that I advise everyone to look up. It is on YouTube. It is very easy to find. Damn, okay. Yeah, I'll have to look at that. Yeah, he he, he seems like he would be the perfect um, late-night guest, but, you know, the second show, the, the not the main Tonight Show, the, the second show that they gave to Conan and Jimmy Fallon, you know. Um, yeah, he... he uh... <laughs> He like has a cigarette with him, but he doesn't light it, but he's, he like, he almost puts it in backwards and he's kind of hunched over the whole time. It, it is Conan has no idea what the fuck is going on. Um, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. So that sounds great. Um, but, uh, yeah, it is a bit, I guess a word you could use to describe it today would be cringy because it's, it's like something, it's like watching a train wreck. Um, but either way, it's good. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I've heard also there's been some chatter online. Um, I would shout out whoever originally posted this, but I have no idea who it was. There's been some chatter online about the best um, commentary tracks for movies. And yes, King t- of New York. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I've heard all of Abel Ferrara's uh, uh, commentaries are just like amazing. Uh, that he that they're just like entertaining, and somebody had like a list of the quotes uh, that were like like he's watching the credits and he's going, "Yep, that's that's everybody that's in the movie." Like. <laughs> On King in New York, because I've listened to that commentary, it opens up with, hi, I'm Abel Ferrara. I'm here because they paid me $5,000. <laughs> he like, he go, he go, uh, he, you see the, you see the one, the one woman that was running around with walking in the beginning. She's, I can't remember. I don't know her name. She's the black woman. Mm-hmm. He's like, God, I almost married that girl. <laughs> and then he's like, he's showing scenes of the faces and he's like, God, these, these, they're such pieces of ass. <laughs> and and the scene when Walken's on the subway and he like opens her shirt and gropes her, he's like, "Oh my god, can you believe he's getting paid to do this?" <laughs> it is just fucking insanity. It is Jesus. worth listening to. That's incredible. Yeah, I I've only listened to his uh, his track on King of New York, but I I I'm sure that he's hilarious on all of them. Mm, yeah, that's incredible. Uh, mainly, I just I love honesty. Like if the first line out of your mouth is "I'm here because they paid me," uh, it's gonna work out. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, hey, you know, five thousand dollars a talk uh, for two hours. Let's talk about King of New York. It was uh, 1990. It was written by a collaborator uh, of his, Nicholas St. John. I would say that it's a famous gangster movie. I think it's became more famous because of like how hip hop culture feels about it. And just because Christopher Walken is just become such a household name, but I still don't think it gets it the credit it deserves. I also disagree with Ferreira saying that he's quoted as saying, um, we made Scarface look like Mary Poppins, which is absurd. <laughs> um, but, uh, the basic rundown of this, to say. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand it. But uh, the the basic rundown is a drug kingpin is released from prison, and he wants to basically take over the criminal underworld because he wants to give back to the community. He wants to be like a Robin Hood of sorts. Um, now, was this your first time watching this movie? Yes, this is a movie that I thought I had seen, uh, and it turns out I had not seen it. So you know, there you go. Perfect. Okay. Well, tell us, um, we'll, we'll get into it, but first I, I want to hear your initial thoughts, how you feel about it and, uh, and just kind of what your takeaway is. You know, my initial thought, I mean, I loved it, honestly. I, uh, you know, this is, this is a great movie. Um, I will say my kind of general thoughts are, which I guess we can, we can get into it, uh, yeah. more as we go, but you know, I, I I couldn't help but compare the two. You know, Bad Lieutenant and and this because and, and King of New York because um, obviously I just watched them back to back and they're really the only two Abel Ferrara movies that I've seen. And so, uh, you know, Bad Lieutenant for me seems like it is a masterpiece and seems like it is uh, very thematically coherent right whereas king of new york doesn't feel that way and for me the only thing that i I, the only thing i didn't like about king of new york is like i feel like they make kind of a big deal about him being a philanthropist and also like a ruthless killer and it's like i don't know what i don't know what your point is in trying to do that is it just because it's like funny like irony you know or not funny but like is it just pure irony because if so like okay 
is it because you're trying to make him like more complicated and more sympathetic? Well, I mean, okay, but that's not necessarily going to make me more sympathetic because he wants to save a South Bronx hospital or whatever, you know? So like that, that part of the narrative really didn't do anything for me, but that is uh, a very minor complaint because I think the things that I enjoyed most about this movie are um, his, well, his, his, his visual abilities are truly incredible. Um, And we can get into like specific instances of that, but really just an absolute masterclass in, in neo-noir filmmaking. And um, the other thing, other than his like visual, um, expertise and and just uh just the amazing uh look of this movie is the performances i mean there are a ton of legends in this i mean we got wesley snipes we got Lawrence fishburne obviously christopher walken um david caruso um who else giancarlo esposito one of my favorites right he's in it And, and there's even some like character actors who i couldn't uh I couldn't place, but I've seen them in many things before. So like the performances are like incredible. And the way that he, the way that he like lets the camera kind of linger on the performances, you know, he knows he's got some great performances here. And I think that's really, um, uh, that's really a, a big selling point. And then the final selling point for me was just, this is a portrait of New York city uh, right after the end, the, at the end of its the worst decade in New York City history, which was the 80s, right? The city was an absolute fucking cesspool at that point. And uh, this, both this and Bad Lieutenant are very much portraits of that time and place. And um, yeah, so generally I loved it, yeah. Well, it's interesting. Uh, first off, for some reason, Steve Buscemi's in this. Oh, that's right. That's right. He's not in it very much, but for some reason, every time Steve Buscemi shows up on camera when he's doing the, like he he made the fucking movie, but he's like surprised every time Buscemi shows up when he's doing the commentary, and he just laughs (laughs) uncontrollably. And it's just like you made the movie, like you know he's in it, right? Like, (laughs) um, it's just hilarious, but uh. I'll tell you, sometimes I joked around with you about, I joked around with you the other day about this. People sometimes say two things that drive me insane. They say Pacino overacted in Scarface, which I'm not having it. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And they say Lawrence Fishburne overacted in this movie. And I thought Lawrence Fishburne is fucking perfect in this movie because he is a guy who is always coked up. He's not afraid to kill anybody. He he has the world by the balls, and he acts like it, and I love it. Um, yeah, I'm he, not. He's I'm, just so good. I'm not buying any of that either. I mean, I'm sorry, that's bullshit. Um, yeah, I, you know, speaking of Lawrence Fishburne, and I, I, I guess I just want to point this out, maybe as a way of discussion about this. There's something that's really um, you mentioned briefly something I didn't know, which is that the hip hop community really looks back at this movie as a as a touchstone in much the same way that they look at Scarface. And I didn't know that, but it doesn't surprise me because, you know, uh, thinking of like hip hop, right? Like 
what do people th- say is the golden age of hip hop, right? They say it's the nineties, you know, Tupac, Biggie, etc. And, you know, people killing each other and they romanticize the danger and the um, toughness of nineties hip hop. Right. And obviously, you know, I, I, I think there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but a lot of times the eighties hip hop culture gets short shrift, you know, and, sometimes justifiably so i mean you know you you turn on some of that music today and the rhyme schemes are very simple and nobody's really rapping about anything cool or dangerous you know at least until nwa in 88 or 89 so i understand that but this the one of the things that was so fascinating about this is and lawrence fishburne's performance is kind of the main exemplar of this is that those corny motherfuckers who were dressing up like run dmc and my adidas and the gold chains and stuff those people were fucking killing each other in the 80s right like we look back on it now as like oh wasn't the 80s a crazy decade you know and these like you know the kind of rap music that's like well my name is you know so and so and i want to say and it's like those people were killing each other right those some of those people were absolute gangsters you know and if they weren't killing each other, they were getting killed by other criminals, you know, and living in absolute squalor in the Bronx, you know, where obviously hip hop began. And so that was one thing that I really admired about this. And I admired about Lawrence Fishburne's performance because it was like, what if like a crazy, you know, like 90s, like or, or something in the wire, you know, what if like Weebay was in 1990 and he would like what would he be he would be coked out of his absolute mind like you said you know like and there's certain scenes where they're like partying and stuff i don't know it just abel ferrara makes that like 80s hip-hop culture look tough and dangerous in a way that i don't think i've ever seen before you know well yeah i mean you can tell that he respected it and appreciated it from an angle where it wasn't exploitative. Yep. Yep. Which I think is huge because look, I love gangster rap. I am not a hip hop history guy at all, nor do I claim to be, but um, I love gangster rap. I love NWA. I love Tupac. I love Dre. I love ice cube. I love all those guys. But the nineties, if you look at the actual history, is the corporate decade. Everybody sold out for record deals. Mm. Everything changed in the mid-90s. So when you look at this movie made in 1990, there is a reason why it reflected like something that that was being held special, especially when you look at like Notorious B.I.G., who was obsessed with this movie. And the rumor was he would use Frank white when he would go to hotels and stuff as like an, as like an alias, Uh, like old school hip hoppers thought this movie was just something else because it wasn't like a white savior. Like, like Mm -hmm. he's like walking as the criminal overlord who's coming to save the community. It's like, no, like they, they worked for him and with him. But also, like, and now I will, uh, before I say this, I agree with you 100%. The screenplay is pretty bad in terms of a through line for that character. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know what the fuck you're doing for half the time walking. I don't know who you are, but I don't care either. Yeah. So yeah. I do agree with you that it, that it is there, but also I think we both agree it doesn't matter. Agreed. Um, 100%. 
Yeah. So, so when you look at his relationship with these guys, it's never a employer employee kind of thing. Like I love their first meeting because like some people say that scene can be read as you don't know if they're there to battle with Frank because you just saw them gun down the Colombians. Mm -hmm. But it's like, no, like you, you shouldn't think that you saw them kill the guy from the brothel and leave the paper that said Frank White's getting out of prison. So you should have never thought they were there to battle. They were there to embrace. Like, mm-hmm. I thought that's pretty clear. I don't know if you agree or disagree, but. Um, yeah, I mean. I, I, I thought that. To, to me, I don't, I don't think it was. I, no, I didn't quite think it was clear. I thought they were there to, like, fuck him up. Well, I mean, I guess I didn't really necessarily think they were there to fuck him up. I just didn't know what was going on. I think maybe it was, you know, like, I was still trying to figure out, like, what the what the situation was, I guess. I, I well, I will say, I guess the trope, it, I, I, I'm not, I, I'll, I'll, I'll blame a lot of it on the, on the movie trope of the embrace after you think somebody's there to fight, because that happens right. in a lot of movies where people get out of prison. So by the time I watched King of New York, when I was like 15, I had already seen like 10 movies where they did that. Right. So right. maybe that's, maybe that's what, what's playing into how I felt. Yeah. But I mean, you know, Frank really, uh, allies himself to the black community and embraces it and um what's the word i guess i guess just embraces it he embraces the black community and the movie itself embraces you know black culture in the 80s you know that is um you know pre-gangster rap but which you know obviously gangster rap was about to emerge into the public consciousness um and uh, especially with him kind of symbolically killing the mafia guy early on, right? Because I, I just, I just assumed it was a mafia movie. I mean, King of New York, a gangster movie. Okay, like I was completely shocked. I had no idea it was going to be like uh, Belly, you know, with Christopher Walken. You know, like that's uh, like I feel like it was like that almost, or like menace to society. But you know in New York and with Christopher Walken, like I, I, I did not know it was going to take place in that, you know, cultural environment. And that, that was really fascinating, but yeah, like he symbolically kills all the Colombians, you know, like scar, like, it's like, yeah, this is not a, you know, this is not Scarface. You know, this is not the Colombian drug runners from Miami. This is not an, this is not Goodfellas. This is not an Italian gangster movie. Like this is about, you know, the real dominant, uh, criminal, uh, and, you know, uh, dangerous environment in New York city, which is, you know, that these, that these black people were forced to live in this city that they couldn't get out of, you know, because all the white people left and all the tax dollars left and so on and so forth. And so the city just, the city just rotted from the inside out, you know, like, and they just, the the elected officials you know obviously just let the the streets run rampant and i don't know man i thought that was a an absolutely fascinating aspect to the story and to the movie and the fact that it's not like it's not like somebody going back in and making this movie now no it was made on the streets during that time i mean on the fucking subway where like crazy shit like that would happen you know like it just 
that really made the movie come alive for me and, and made it really exciting and really like a portrait of a time and a place and a, and a cultural environment that was really, really dangerous, you know? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not the first person to say this and I'm sure I, we may have, I may have even said it on this podcast before. I don't know. I can't remember, but this movie came out in 1990. We mm-hmm. both know a lot of our listeners know what else came out in 1990. And a lot of people argue that if Goodfellas hadn't came out the same year, King of New York would be a, 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 a more well-known film, but good Goodfellas buried it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there, there can only be a certain number of like high ranking mafia movies because there's so many. Mm-hmm. So this one kind of gets overlooked for that reason you're talking about. Like this isn't, this isn't about the Italians. Christopher Walken is not Italian in this movie. Like this isn't about Colombians or any of that. This is, this is something else. It represents something else, which I think that's part of what makes this movie so special on top of all the other things you named. Yeah. And probably what makes it, you know, like along with the Goodfellas thing, probably what makes it kind of culturally limited, you know, because, uh, I mean, well, I don't know. I, I say that, but then I don't know who who knows what's going to catch on. But you know, you got to think that uh, a movie like this might have uh, shorter legs to it because it's literally about Christopher Walken and a bunch of black people. You know, like, and maybe maybe that wasn't, you know, that's not De Niro and Pesci, you know, uh, and Ray Liotta, you know. Yeah, and, and actually, for a second, let's just focus on Walken's performance it mm. is hands down my favorite performance he's ever given mm. and he said uh he told he told the crew and the cast he said he told him i don't know how to act like a king so you need to act like i am one and it works because you feel that these guys respect him on a level that we don't get to see any of it we see i mean <laughs> Uh, uh, Ferrara said Stanley Kubrick said the most important frame of a movie is your first one and he's like all this all these motherfuckers with with like high tech shit and all that he's like this is my first frame and it's walking like in glasses looking like a book nerd in prison Mm -hmm. and like then we're introduced to his gang and it's like no he is like now we have to accept like he was the top dog before he went away and the movie does a good job of, of carrying that over. Yeah. It's like, you know, I, I think we could, I think we could maybe combine a couple of things here and talk about Walken's performance and specifically how Ferrara like films it in such a way to enhance that performance. Right. Like, um, you know, I, I was thinking about this in relation to Goodfellas or thinking about it in regards to the reputation that Ferrara has as kind of like a, you know, a, a guy on the extremes, right? And his visual style does not match the subject matter, right? Like, there's not a point in the movie where it feels like the camera has just snorted a line like it does in Goodfellas, right? Yeah. Like Scorsese's, uh, you know, editing patterns and 
you know, his the music, the needle drops and all that in Goodfellas is much more frenetic and maximalist compared to Ferrari. And there's a reason for that. It's because Scorsese was, you know, the first and a genius, et cetera. But Ferrari is up to something different. I mean, there's a lot of long takes here. There's a lot of, um, you know, it's definitely more kind of art house friendly. Um, which I think is one of the reasons why he's caught on. But his his visual palette is just so it's often, like I said, slow, long takes. Um, and that beginning, man, that beginning is uh, I, I read an analysis of, of that opening scene on the, the movie notebook uh, website. And they're talking about how he, he, he intended that to mirror the opening of Nosferatu. And uh, because Nosferatu was um, one of his favorite movies and one, a, a key inspiration behind this movie, apparently. And there's there's even footage from Nosferatu. Somebody's watching it on TV. Yeah, when point. he goes to talk to that guy, and I think I think the guy says, "Hey, you want to hang out? Frankenstein's next." I think that's yeah. what he says. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's like a Chinatown movie theater or something. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, it, it's uh, the opening is like. He, he is wearing glasses and he looks like a nerd, but the the way that he's acting and the kind of stoicism and then the way that the camera is moving and you've got these like shadows and he's moving in and out of shadow and then he's behind a grate and then he's behind, you know, like it, it looks there's something very foreboding about it. Right. It almost, he almost looks like Hannibal Lecter or something like he. Yeah. He, he, like. And the, the, it comes up at the end too, whenever he's kind of wandering through with that um, that coat wrapped around him. I mean, he looks like a like a vampire, like floating through you know Times Square or something. There, it, it's not necessarily scary as it just is like imposing or dominant or something. There's something that's really really striking about both Walken's performance and how Ferrara frames that performance that. Um, is really, really effective and really makes him seem like he is the title character, the King of New York. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. I think. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think probably the easiest example to pull from what you're saying is like when Ray Liotta is freaking out and thinks that thinks the helicopter's following him Mm -hmm. and the camera is so frantic and bouncy, just like he is like you Mm -hmm. feel the paranoia, but with, with Ferrara, you're, not only is he up to something different, but I also think he understands like it was 1990. Like he had all this raw talent in front of him. So he just lets these long takes happen. Mm-hmm. Like he pushes in occasionally. He'll, 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 he'll do a close up. He'll, he will do some of these things, but for the most part, he allows these scenes to run their course. And I think it's because everyone Worked. I mean, this is before David Caruso becomes a douchebag. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is like when Lawrence Fishburne was still going by Larry. Right. Like Wesley Snipes wasn't a huge star yet. New Jack Zitty comes out, I think, one or two years after this, and then Wesley Snipes takes off. So he's getting all this raw talent when, and not to mention Victor Argo, who he worked with a few times. Um, you're getting all this talent, so you're just letting it happen because the chemistry works so well. I believed. David Caruso and Wesley Snipes and Argo, I believe these guys hated Frank with a passion mm-hmm. be, because of what he represented. And it it all was just, 
everything. He just let the camera sit in the bar as we kind of just hang out with these guys and the hatred they feel. Yeah. And as they plot the, obviously what would be what sets everything into motion for Frank white to end, which is, you know, them being dirty cops and, and fucking them up because the system had failed them. Mm -hmm. And uh, man, that scene when, when Lawrence Fishburne chases down snipes and then he shoots him and he's like dances over him. Yeah. And then Caruso kills Fishburne and dude, Fishburne's writhing around on the ground screaming. He's so happy. Snipes is dead. Mm -hmm. And like Caruso crouches over him and just blows his brains out. Yeah. Like that. And, and, and the shadows like you already mentioned earlier, the shadows of this movie, like he shot everything. The lighting is just perfect. There's just something he was clicking on all cylinders. Cause I do believe this is his best movie by far. Mm. And I think he just brought something to the table. Maybe bad Lieutenant miss 45, maybe some of these old school, like, like movies that he did, maybe they're better scripted, but King of New York, he just did something unique with that sets it apart from all the other, what would become like quote unquote, Goodfellas ripoffs and, and generic gangster movies. Yeah. You know, it's it, some, like there was some parts of it that are just kind of like standard for these movies, you know, like the, the car chase, and it was like, okay, you know, the car chase, whatever, whatever. And then it was like, I, I, the car chase is so visually incredible. Like, th I, this sounds crazy. And I, maybe you'll know the shot that I'm talking about. I'm probably, if you've seen it a million times, um, th it, there's a crazy shot where it looks like the way the lights are reflecting off the bridge, it looks like the Brooklyn Bridge is on fire. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was just like, what like it took me like it took me i almost paused it it took me a second and then all of a sudden it starts raining and i was just like this is like it, it's just so it you know it reminds me of michael mann and i know obviously ferrara has worked with um michael mann but it reminds me of uh pre and post 90s man where like you get some of these incredible visuals like in collateral or <clears throat> miami vice uh, or thief, you know, where you get some of these just like amazing, like visual moments in the middle of what is supposed to be just basic ass action movie shit, like a boat chase or whatever. You'll get this incredible shot in the middle of it that you're just like, oh my God, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And there are some moments like that in this movie. Like, um, even in the, in, in, right at, when they're in the house and they're, when right before the cops uh, bust in at the end when they're I don't know where they are but that location was fucking fantastic um and uh they're just like like half the girls are like topless and they're just like dancing and doing coke and celebrating and you know you know something bad's about to happen and man oh man it's just really just incredible filmmaking I think um dude yeah. it, but like it, it it goes it it goes from being as we both said like art house to having these generic things thrown in like a car chase mm -hmm. like he, he it's kind of like he had something for everybody because he had to make the movie commercial as well a lot of directors have to compromise a bit you know so they can get the movie made mm -hmm. so like i feel like while he's trying to tell this this story 
of of Frank White. Like he had to throw some of those things. But even when he does it, it's some of my favorite moments. Yeah. When the cops hanging on the side of the car and Fishburne takes yes. his, his mask off and he's like, oh shit, it's a cop. And fucking Frank smiles yep. as he rams his head into that uh, fire hydrant. And Fishburne pauses and he's like, no one rides for free, motherfucker. Like, <laughs> it's just, it's genius. I'm sorry. Like, Fishburne, everything clicked. I, I cannot say enough good things about this movie. It is well-directed. It has so many great performances in it uh, from people who would go on, obviously, to have careers that last decades. Um, yeah, I mean, before we move on, I just want to shout out a couple of my favorite moments uh, that are just minor, just little grace notes that I thought were incredible. When Walken is on the subway, which that scene on the subway is so great. I mean, he's just like, he's just like, just tits out on the subway. Like, he just doesn't give a fuck. Like, if if anything says King of New York, it's that. Just, you know, just like, opening your, opening your, uh, attorney, and she's an attorney, like, she's like, essentially his like his mob lawyer but she's like hot and his girlfriend and he he's taking her clothes off in the subway like it's just so alpha you know like he's just he truly is the king of new york um but whenever the guys try to rob him on the subway he does the classic thing where you you know lift up your shirt or move your jacket over to show that you have a gun but the way that he does it with that christopher walken posture where he's like leading with his hips in a weird way it's like this geriatric stance that he does there's something about it that looks so fucking cool and tough and badass you know what i mean like that gun was really out there you know and the way that he like i don't know man just just, just the way that he did that was just so incredible to, to me like it, it i don't know it was just great um and there's a well, he of- go he goes to pull it out, but he's not the reason it's great. Like I love the I love his body language, but not just his body language, but the intent that goes with it. He mm. had no intention of pulling the gun, right? So when he flips his jacket, he's doing some he's he's showing them that I could end you, right? But I'm not going to, right? Nor do I want to, right? Like right. He, here's here's a way out. Like take this. Like come by the hotel. I got some work for you. Cause they don't have, they don't have guns, right? I mean, he could blow them the fuck away. Like with that cannon, you know, in the front of his pants and like, man, that's, that's just such a, that's such an incredible scene. Um, but, uh, what I said, I got a big shout out. Um, Harold Perrineau, yes, who is the, is the thug leader. Um, that dude's great. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite roles from him, Romeo and Juliet, he plays Mercutio. But this dude's been around. He's still acting. This is him as a youngster. But he is an actor, producer, musician. He's fucking fantastic. He was he was good. That little role for him, I like seeing him there. Yeah, it was was real was uh I think the role that maybe got him paid the most uh was uh Lost. He was a recurring character on Lost, uh, for most of the run, I think. Um Oh, that's cool. I've never seen Lost. I knew he was on like he was on like Sons of Anarchy and and yeah. I've seen him in a ton of movies, Zero Dark Thirty and The Matrix and stuff, but I, I never watched Lost. Anyway, he's a great actor. It was cool to see him show up. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. The other stuff is just minor, I guess. Just like there, there's, you know, there, obviously <laughs> there's a great line from Superbad where Bill Hader says like, 
uh man you got to get a gun it's like a cock you can shoot you know (laughs) (laughs) and like you know obviously there's the there's the there's that's a huge metaphor and you know culture is the gun is a penis but like he really makes it explicit in this one scene where this girl like puts her hands down this guy's pants while he's got a gun in it and it's just like she's grabbing the gun like it's a his dick or she's grabbing his dick like it's a gun you know like i don't know it's just this really this really funny visual like uh thing that happens um god damn and there was something else i was gonna point out um i don't know that 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 ending where he's just like walking through the streets of new york man it's just oh man it's just great you know yeah i mean that's what i was gonna say like man that standoff he has with with uh, Argo at um, Victor Argo at his apartment mm-hmm. where he's like, now there's a price on your head, like anybody involved in this case. So he chases him to the subway. They pull guns. Obviously he, he kills him and then walk in a shot. And um, when he's just, he, he walks off the subway and you don't know he's shot, mm-hmm. but I mean, there's only, there's only one way this movie's going to end. Yeah. Right. I mean, there, there's no other way for it. So he, he gets, he, he, like you said, it's all like you had the lighting around the hustling, bustling city, everything this man wanted to fix. He was willing to die for it and he's going to, and he's like floating through the city. He's got that coat. Like you said, it's perfectly shot. He gets in the taxi says, just drive. He dies and the gun ling- and the camera lingers on the gun in his hand. Mm. And I'm sure I'm not the first person to say this, but in hip hop, there's a very like updated saying, as the old saying is, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Hip hop, you live by the gun, you die by the gun. Mm. And that's just how it is. Like it even no matter what your intent is, it doesn't matter if he's a humanitarian, if his heart was pure, if he really did just want to save the hospital, he was a violent killer violence will lead to other violence. Mm -hmm. So that is what has to happen to Frank white, unfortunately, because I thought he was great. I wish he hadn't died. I wish he would have had all of his dreams come true. (laughs) Which I wish they'd elected him mayor. (laughs) Yeah, that too. He said, uh, he he said he wanted to be mayor. I would have voted for him. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, and, and speaking of that, Caruso's death, Jesus Christ, man. Oh yeah. That's dude, that, that I think I think that's one of the more well-known scenes from this movie. Oh um, man. Because at that point he just didn't give a fuck anymore. Yeah. He he pulls up next to Caruso at the funeral. A cop's of Tom, funeral. Of, of Tommy. Like at a fucking funeral for Wesley Snipes. Caruso already blames himself because it was his stupid idea. Got Tommy killed, his best friend, his best man at his wedding. No fucks given. Frank rolls up with a double barrel sawed off shotgun, blows his fucking brains out. Hey, you. <laughs> yeah. Just paints the inside of his car. Brutal. Oh, man. Yeah, that was when he was done. Yeah, he was just completely done. Um, yeah, he had checked out. I mean, it, it was over. There was only one way it was going from there. There was no there was no way he was going to he was going to get it figured out uh, past that. So. Yeah, just incredible. But, uh, and, and Caruso, uh, j- the Caruso kissing Wesley Snipes after he died. You know, I mean, yeah. this, is, this is obviously something we see a lot in in movies. Is like you know, kind of these masculine codes of uh, behavior. You know, Hawk, Howard Hawks. You know, kind of stuff. And that was 
I don't know, man, just little grace notes like that to throw in there, you know, and all of it is centered around performance. None of it centered around like, you know, show offy camera shit, you know, oh man, it was great. I loved it. Yeah. I mean, I totally bought their friendship. I bought that, that he was truly hurt. Like, mm. um, yeah, every, I mean, everybody, I mean, at this point there's, there's, there, there's not much to say. Yeah. I mean, it's go watch this movie. If you haven't seen it, I do believe it's streaming on Criterion or you can, uh, rent it, watch it for free at plex.tv. There's a few ways to watch it, but go watch it. Um, if you haven't seen it, but, uh, let's get to bad Lieutenant. Mm-hmm. Now this is a movie I feel you liked more than me. Now I like this movie, but, um, I, I do have a feeling you're, you've liked it more than me. Uh, bad Lieutenant is the first NC 17 movie I ever got to see. I think I've only seen like two of them in my entire life. Mm. It's just funny to say that now. Um, because I don't even think most people realize NC 17 is a rating anymore. Yeah, I mean, but, um, I, I don't. Is it, it, it even still a rating? I mean, I don't know. It doesn't seem like there's very many movies that got that designation. You know, all you ever see anymore, you see it a lot with Tarantino. You saw it with with Hateful Eight. You saw it with Django. MPAA threatening to give Tarantino's new movie an NC seventeen rating. And it's like, no, you're not. Yeah, he's gonna come on. He's gonna change the shade of blood or do something because you don't give out NC seventeen ratings anymore. Right. Um. But anyway, this this movie, I mean, the I mean, the synopsis doesn't matter. I'll tell you anyway. Um, <laughs> while investigating the rape of a young nun, uh, a corrupt New York City police officer, uh, detective, he uh, has a serious drug and gambling addiction. I think that's putting it lightly. <laughs> uh, tries to change his ways and find forgiveness and redemption. No, no, he doesn't. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> this movie is uh, co-written by Zoe Lund and Ferrara, but she claims she wrote it by herself. He claims they wrote it together. So who knows? Yeah. But uh, it's starring Harvey Keitel. What do you think, man? Like you've seen, you've seen this one. Uh, I know you've seen it before this episode. What do you think about this movie? You know, I, uh, I, I love this movie. I think this is a masterpiece. I do like it better than King of New York. Um, well, yeah, yeah. I would probably say I like it better. Um, I, I just think it's, it's, you know, wholly conceived. I mean, you know, Keitel, you know, he just is, uh, he's evil and bad in not a fun way, you know, like, um, like <laughs> there's so many uh there's so like you just said about Frank White like it's like man like Frank White has power over people and so that is you know that he has true power and obviously most of us are completely powerless in the grand scheme of things and so it's fun to think about that and like want to be him or like live through it you know by proxy or whatever but Keitel in this movie I don't, no one wants to be Harvey Keitel in this movie like it, he this is like uncut gems, uh, but if, you know, Adam Sandler was also a heroin addict. Um, and the shit that he's doing in this movie is not even cool and fun. Like, he just uh, he's just, like, shooting up and just, like, standing around naked um, and, you know, taking drugs from people and uh, from crime scenes and trying to sell it and not being able to sell it or, or dropping the drugs and almost getting caught and placing absolutely insane bets on you know world series games and um and jesus the coup de gras the fucking jacking off on the car scene um 
with the two girls, uh, two minors, I think. Um, Jesus Christ, man. You know, like, uh, but I, I think this movie is stronger because it is more, it, it's more of like an examination of that kind of, uh, you know, what Scorsese is often up to specifically with mean streets, you know, this kind of, um, Catholic guilt and this like search for redemption and, um, this attempt to redeem himself. And I guess, you know, your opinion on whether he does or not, you know, depends on your perspective. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. I just think this is a really richly, very complex work that is on another level than King of New York. Although King of New York is certainly more fun to watch. I'll say that. Well, you can stop me. You already mentioned it. So I'm assuming you won't disagree, but I have a tendency to do this a lot because I love them so much. And I think that they do pull a lot of inspiration from the same movies that we love, but this, like the, there's no way this didn't influence uncut gems. Oh, right. Um, like impossible that it didn't. I bet. I know. I don't know. The Safdie brothers are fans of these like old school, gritty New York movies. So it would make sense, Mm -hmm. but except this wasn't, like I've watched uncut gems like five times. And every time I watch it, I have a different opinion of how I feel about Sandler and whether I'm going to root for him or not. Mm-hmm. The first time I hated him and the next two times I loved him. So I, I go back and forth, but I'm never rooting for Harvey Keitel. I don't care if this character gets redemption because honestly, I think he's like too far gone to get it. I don't think he got it. Um, so it's a really interesting exploration. And this isn't even an exploration. Like, like you said it with Scorsese and, and forgiveness and guilt and this, this Catholic guilt that can just get seep into your bones. Like this explores something that is much darker than like this surface level toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. this is something that, that toxic masculinity quote unquote would run away from afraid. Yeah, because it is so just corrupt and awful. And this man's life is a complete and utter train wreck. And and I have read in the past and I've heard in the past that people talk about like the squilling card uh, the Kaitel does that that he kind of wanted to do like it doesn't like you may think it's part of the soundtrack or it doesn't fit. But every time I watch this movie, which isn't often because it's heavy and it's tough to watch. I like that scene because it bleeds the desperation hmm. and 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 just the I can't even think of a, a good word, I'm sure you can, for how he feels as things just get worse throughout the movie. He loses more money. He can't get anything together. He continues to to destroy himself even more with every injection and every hit of a line and every bet he places. So in the church, which is one of my favorite scenes of the whole movie, when he just hits his knees and he thinks he sees Jesus, that scene is magical. That, that scene is absolutely next level filming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, we we say these things of like what it's about, and it's like you know, obviously it's a cliche that we really can't put it into words, but you can put it into words, and that's why they make movies about these. Things. You know, you know, like that's why that's why they make movies about these things and they dramatize it because it, it's not enough to put it into words. His 
you know, his Kaitel's performance is so um, desperation isn't the word. Like it, it's no, it's not. It's something like I couldn't think of it. It's something much, yeah, much more hardcore, much it, more hard, hard to define. It, it's like there's poison in his soul, right, or in his bones. I mean, it, it, it's like there, there's just this deep poison there, and then there's, you know, because like that's that's where the conflict happens right because it'd be one thing if like you're just like you know it's the tony soprano thing it'd be one thing if it's just like oh he's a gangster whatever whatever but he's a gangster who is trying to go to therapy to figure some shit out and you know that's kaitel's character he's a gangster okay so what but he's a gangster who is longing for some kind of uh redemption and obviously you know he's probably grew up catholic so that's he's trying to seek this kind of um miracle of redemption you know that that he is like wailing and crying out for you know because of this poison that's in his soul and uh that is that is harrowing man like (laughs) you you know that's that's it is and the performance is fearless dude that word gets thrown around a lot especially around oscar season you know like we have a um Charlize theron doesn't wear enough makeup in a movie and it's a fearless performance or whatever but this is truly a fearless performance this is a man who left nothing on the table with this performance no reservations nothing like it uh it's just astonishing you know well i'll double down with you about fearless in terms of so-and-so loses a lot of weight for this role or so-and-so yeah. lives as a homeless man for three months mm. to prepare for this. Like, no, I'm sorry. Like that's, that's, that's fine that you can do that for your craft. But the reason I love these old movies and the reason I love this, this, this old grindhouse feel like this is a movie that was made in 92, but feels like it's 76. Yeah. Like the reason I love it is because they don't do them anymore because fearlessness doesn't exist anymore because corporations have destroyed it. So yeah, I mean, Harvey, you you, Harvey you, Keitel gives his soul to this performance. Right. You don't want to take too many risks. I mean, because you'll look, uh, you know, you'll look awkward or you'll look, you know, um, I don't know. <laughs> You're not going to like this, but I, uh, you know, fearless is such a cliched word, but there are moments in, uh, in, in, in obviously modern movies or even movies that get nominated for Oscars or whatever, where there are, you know, truly bare performances. I, I genuinely, I'm not doing a bit here. I genuinely think this, that in, um, the Les Miserables movie, the musical with Anne Hathaway, I legitimately think there is a moment when she is singing that song that is really completely true, open, barefaced, like absolute, the bottom of human emotion. And I, I think Anne Hathaway has achieved that once and has never been able to achieve it for the rest of her entire career. And that's, you know, that's the probably. Yes, a- it, it was human emotion. It was the human emoting that she'll do anything for an Oscar. It's like Leo in and <laughs> that movie. I forgot the fucking name of it. The Revenant. Uh, the Revenant. She's just she's she's singing and weeping and hoping for that Oscar. Um, <laughs> but I, but I'm, no, I'm just saying like that that type of thing is possible. Obviously, in these like mainstream movies or movies that get nominated. But this type of performance is not the type that gets nominated or the type that gets like a lot of like. Uh, 
you know, awards buds or what. This is truly fearless. This man has bared himself literally and spiritually on screen and, you know, a role that he also sympathized with, right? This is this is Harvey Keitel we're talking about here, right? This, you think this man was a saint? I mean, I'm not saying he did any of the even remotely immoral things that the bad lieutenant character does, but you know that he got up to some shenanigans in the 80s, and you know that as a good Catholic boy, he felt guilty about that shit. So this is, you know, this is based in, in real life in a, in a certain way. Uh, obviously, it's exaggerated, but... Um, yeah, it's just it's just an astonishing performance, you know. I'll also have you know, fearlessness does still exist because Chloe Zhao fought for that sex scene in the Eternals. Okay, pal, <laughs> she fought hard. You know, all the all that progressive stuff that they put in there, they're going to edit out for China. She fought for that. Okay, <laughs> um, Kumail Nanjiani took a fear. He was fearless with the amount of steroids he took in order to uh, get that big Disney paycheck. The doctor said, it's going to hurt your heart. I don't care, doctor. It's for the performance. <laughs> it's um, for the, the corporation of Disney. Uh, the mouse says, I got to do it. So mm-hmm. I'm doing it. Um, anyway, uh, actually, the mouse and Bad Lieutenant have a lot in common. Actually, I'm going to stop there. Um, Wait, what? So, <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> nothing. There's no reason to make inappropriate Disney jokes about Mickey Mouse here. Okay. Um, so... Back to this performance, like in all seriousness, um, it is great. I mean, he, he's given performances like this, like my personal favorite cat tail performance is Reservoir Dogs, but he gives such a gritty performance in this. And, and I agree with you, like he is carrying some guilt around, like he has to be. So that Catholic shit burns into your soul, just like, you know, the Protestant shit burns into your soul, depending on how you're raised. I wouldn't know what you're talking about. Oh yeah, me either. But uh <laughs> but you know, an interesting scene in this movie is the one you already mentioned, which is when he is he pulls over the two girls. Mm. This is an interesting scene because you could have really derailed how the viewer was going to feel about Kaitel. Like mm-hmm. you could have really like done away with any thought that the audience is still rooting for your redemption. But instead, they made a decision to do something that was so desperate and sad that it it it's a really gray area. It's still fucked up. I'm not saying it's not, but it's it was just a very interesting scene. Wait, specifically, like, what, what are you referring to specifically? Oh, the scene when he pulls them over and then he basically he makes one show her ass and the other one no, basically. Yeah do what she would do when she would, if she was giving oral sex, like, so you could have really lost it. You could have lost the audience. If you had had him do something awful, like forced her to give him oral sex. Oh, 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 I you see. know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. But instead okay. the movie takes this alternate route that is also fucked up, but it's fucked up in a different way. Yes. Yes. It's fucked up in a different way because he can't even have his cake and eat it too. Right. Like if you're going to assault, you know, this, and this is going to sound tongue in cheek. I genuinely don't mean it that way. Like if you're going to cross that line and assault, you know, these women, like, why aren't you going all the way? Right. Like, why aren't you, if you're going to be this awful of a person, like just go take what you want. Right. But he can't because, because he is a tortured soul. And like, even when he's doing something awful, like forcing, uh, you know, a, a sexual act out of a, a, a young woman, uh, 
essentially a gunpoint. I mean, not not literally, but I mean, you know, he's got a badge and a gun. I mean, um, yeah, it's it's that the threat is there, so therefore it makes it that way. Right, right, right. So like, and you're just gonna jerk off on the side of the car? Like, there's something pathetic about that, right? Like, uh, yeah, no, I think pathetic is the right word. There's something pathetic about that. That it's like, dude, you can't even you can't even go all the way or like do you're just going to jerk off on the side of the car while somebody makes faces at you. Like it's fucking pathetic, dude. You Like that's sad. Like what are you, you know, it's, it's no, I see exactly what you're saying. It's, it's a, uh, yeah, it is. It's, it's a fascinating scene. Now this movie you will notice is one hour and 36 minutes. If you rent this movie from YouTube or Amazon, you will get a movie that is an hour and 31 minutes. Uh-oh. There is nothing I detest, or there's very few things I detest more than the censorship of art. Love it or hate what's in it, it doesn't fucking matter what you think. It's in it. Like, that is the art. If you watch the YouTube version, or the rented version, you will get a movie that is missing him dancing naked, mm. which is an important character moment. For the audience, you will miss, which I didn't really miss this too much, obviously. You will miss the rape of the nun, which is basically what got it the NC-17 rating to begin with. And they completely take out the scene where he does that with with the two girls at the car. Are you kidding me? They just take all that shit out? Not kidding. It is completely gone. Um, because, see, I, I, I've watched, I watched this movie probably like two years ago. Um, for the first time in years, because it's just a heavy movie. And I wanted to watch it again for the for the podcast, obviously. So I rented it from YouTube, not paying attention. And that's what you get. So I was like, well, this is really weird. That's crazy. Yeah, I rented it on Amazon and it's it's there on Amazon. Um, OK, so maybe it's not Amazon. I was assuming anywhere you rented it, it would be. No, 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 because um, I watched it on Amazon and it was there. Um, OK. Damn, that's, and it's that's, not like that crazy. shit you want. It's not like that shit you want to see. But I mean, right. for this movie, why you can't take away pivotal moments that are either important for it or or important for the character, important right. for the plot, or important for the character. And honestly, I I don't remember too much, but I don't even remember anything being that graphic, especially by today's standards. Um. Right. With with the rape scene. I remember there being a lot of shadows and just a lot of noise, but you don't really get anything that would be too over the top if you look at some bullshit they put on like Netflix and streaming shows and stuff. I mean, shit, Game of Thrones, man. No, I mean, I, yeah. I, I, I watched that. The what I guess is the uncensored version. I mean, yeah, it's yeah, it's nothing that you, you haven't seen Emilia Clark experience on Game of Thrones, you know, like it's yeah, no, it's stupid um now I, let's um real quick i'm sorry did you have something well i kind of wanted to talk about what causes his redemption and kind of the the concept of like forgiveness and the you know his his effort for redemption kind of at the end you know i guess i i don't know i kind of wanted to kind of talk about that and like what the i don't know the thematics behind it but if you got something smaller i mean go for it well, I just want to, nothing, nothing too big. I just wanted to make sure we point out that Ferrara got into a beef with Werner Herzog when he wanted to remake it with Nick Cage. Um, really? Called Bad Lieutenant at the Port of New Orleans. Mm -hmm. 
they buried the hatchet since, but that movie is worth watching. So I wanted to say that before I forgot. Like the remake is fantastic. Um, yeah, I, I love the remake. Cage in the remake is is fucking fantastic. I mean, it's a classic New Orleans movie too. Like, yeah, it's, it's yeah. Cool. I think changing the setting to New Orleans really gave it. I, I hate to even call it a remake. I prefer to call it like a brother or a sister picture opposed to a remake because he changed enough about it. But I mean, yeah, uh, Ferrara was not happy and, and they did have a, a legitimate beef. And I don't know if they made up. I'm assuming they did. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't, that doesn't seem like that crazy of a thing to be unhappy. I mean, that doesn't seem like that, uh, something to be unhappy about. I mean, it's completely different, you know, I don't know. Plus remakes happen, you know? Um, that's true. Hey, they're remaking Citizen Kane. <laughs> um, anyways, no, I kind of wanted to spell out this 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 kind of the, the actual plot of the movie, which is that you yeah, know, the, the bad lieutenant does bad shit, uh, and then uh, there's a situation where a nun gets raped on the altar of a church, basically, uh, and she, I think, in the hospital scene, they say that she is penetrated with a crucifix. Um, they don't, they don't show that, but it's, um, they mention it afterwards and, you know, this, this gets Kaitel's hackles up because he's a good Catholic and he's going to go exact vengeance on whoever did this. And, uh, he's, he's thrown into a little bit of a spiritual crisis because the nun, uh, will not, uh, basically tell the police anything about the incident because she has forgiven her attackers. Right. This is um, presumably uh, and I'm hoping you'll be able to uh, maybe put aside your well-known Catholic, your anti-Catholic bias <laughs> for the purposes uh, of this discussion. Probably not. But we'll see. <laughs> but, um, you know, she is doing uh, the thing that her religious beliefs lead her to do, which is to, you know, forgive somebody, which, uh, you know, I, I don't know. This concept of forgiveness is. A tough one. I mean, you know, it, it, it's it seems kind of uh, weak willed uh, to be like, oh, well, I forgive this person. I'm not going to uh, go through the effort to confront them or to um, deal with the 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 bad thing they did to me. But, you know, uh, I, I guess uh, this concept of forgiveness is a tough one is <laughs> the only way I can say it. Like, I don't it takes a bigger man than me, I guess, you know, bigger person than me to be able to forgive somebody who, uh, who does something very horrific to you, you know? And so this puts him into kind of a spiritual spiral and his moment of redemption is whenever he catches them and instead, uh, puts them on a port authority bus with like, what is it? $30,000 or something, or maybe it's just $3,000. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's money. Yeah, money, basically. Um, and that is um, his moment of forgiveness, redemption. And I guess my question is, like, I know how you are going to respond to the, like, real-world <laughs> implications of all this. But, like, in the movie and aesthetically, what what do we make of this, right? Like, what – because I have been thinking about it. And I don't, I, I don't know. I guess I don't know really kind of what I think about this, right? Um, well, I'm, I'm not joking when I say this. Like, I'm being serious. He let, like, I, I don't believe 
the redemption here. He let two rapists go with cash to go to another town, get high and rape someone else in his own, for his own self-interest. Okay. Like there wasn't redemption there. He was trying, he knows he's going to die. Like at this point, he's so in debt with this guy who already said, I'll kill you. I don't give a shit if you're a cop. That's pretty plain. Not really anything to go off there. Um, so he he needs this forgiveness and he needs to feel this redemption, but he's doing it selfishly. He's doing it for these reasons that it's for his own self-interest. So I personally don't buy into his redemption. It's very, it's it's you know, it's the same thing, very similar with like a taxi driver kind of thing. When right, you know. When he, when he kills everybody at the at the brothel and like saves her and stuff, it's like I don't I don't know, you know, like so okay so so let me just like talk this out. So the the implication is that uh, he is selfishly chasing this feeling of redemption, or he's chasing this feeling of redemption, and it leads him to selfishly give them money, put them on a port authority bus. And while it makes him feel better and makes him think that he has a sense of redemption, uh, he's actually committed harm in his final act of redemption, which is some real irony. <laughs> I, you oh, know? yeah. No, no. I, yeah. And the thing about it is I don't think that that's that crazy. No, like, no, I, no. I don't, I don't think Ferrara, like, would, like, if anything, he meant for that, to, he meant for it to look like that. Mm. I mean, because there is some sick irony in that. There is. I mean, you know, in, in you know, because you think about the concept of redemption as a good thing, right? But like, if he if he viewed, you know, what if he viewed, <laughs> what if someone viewed, you know, uh, killing everybody in a McDonald's as an act of redemption? Well, that's not quite, you know, like <laughs> that's not quite great, you know. So like, what his idea of redemption is to let is to possibly bring harm on whoever these guys run into next. Um, and the thing about it is I also blame the nun. Like, like this idea of forgiveness being the end-all be-all, there still has to be some form of retribution if you want to get down to biblical terms. So arrest them and put them on trial, opposed to just letting these people who did something heinous and will do something heinous again. You will both participate it and them being alleviated of all responsibility for their crimes. So, yeah, so, okay, so in this case, the nun would be selfishly um, adhering to her religious beliefs in order to make herself feel better, as opposed to worrying about the public good, which is that another person may be assaulted by these people. Yeah, and I'm striving not to sound cynical, but I mean, in all honesty, when if you're a nun, she's a devout nun. Like, no, she I, is a... I think this is a legitimate way to interpret the, the movie. Yeah, I just know it just makes me it just sounds cynical, but it really at the end of the day, it's like, no, like you're you're showing what a good Catholic, what a good nun you are by like telling the cops, I can't give you names. Like even in confession, I can't give you a name, Father. I've forgiven them. But mm-hmm. they are going to do it again to another woman. That is a fact. Like it's hard for me to get past that. Mm-hmm. Same yeah. with him. He could he's a fucking cop. He could have arrested and like it's like he, when, when he, like, this is what makes me, like, when I was literally watching it yesterday, it made me mad. I'm watching you put these guys on a bus, but you're a cop. Y- your only two choices weren't blow their brains out in a back alley 
or put them on a bus. There's a third option, which is right. your job. Just to do your fucking job. Right. Yeah. Right, right, which right, is right, to right. take them in and, and put them on trial and let them be held accountable for their, for their crime. You don't have to fucking murder them. You know, that's, um, I think that right there, what you're saying is proof that you're right. Uh, because, uh, why, uh, why seek redemption in this way? Right. Why, why does your redemption, uh, have to be letting rapists go? Why couldn't it be, uh, not killing the next guy who crosses you or so, you know, like, or why couldn't it be, uh, why couldn't your redemption be like giving that $30,000, to uh, your fan, your own family, uh, an orphanage, uh, you know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's, that's, uh, God damn that, that makes it even more tragic and ironic because it's like, this is what you chose as an act of redemption. Like, like, and I think that, that, uh, but I will say, I don't agree with you about the nun because I think, um, and again, I'm just talking about aesthetically, right? Maybe in the real world, that would be the right thing for the nun to do. I don't know. But I'm thinking just like in the realm of the movie, I think the nun is meant to be the polar opposite of Kaitel, you know, of the bad lieutenant in the sense that like she is making a decision based on her own religious ideals that have that she has thought through, right? She, I mean you know, take away any cynicism about the Catholic church. She, as a, as a religious figure has devoted her life to like studying the principles and the teachings of Christ allegedly. Right. Whereas Keitel doesn't have the bad Lieutenant. He doesn't have any, um, background or any working or any, you know, it, 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 he is like the person who is trying to, eat healthy for the first time in their life and is drinking orange juice because it's fruit. You know what I mean? Like he, he's trying to do the right thing for the first time in his life to get some kind of redemption. And it turns out that right thing is not the right thing. And that is a tragic irony. So I think the nun can only be in contrast to him as opposed to being guilty of the same thing as he is, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'd concede on the nun for sure. Like, I think, but, uh, but I think you're, I think you're dead on about that shit, man. Because, and that makes the movie better when you think about it that way, because it is a tragic irony. It is, it well, is, it is the person who has diabetes and is going to eat healthy for the first time in their life, and the first thing they do is drink a giant cup of orange juice. It's like, no, you're, you're not doing the right thing. Like, you're not redeeming yourself in the right way. You know, it's. And that's tragic. Well, I mean, if you really want to get down to it, what really irks me about his character, and and we we were both raised similarly as we have, as we have discussed on this podcast. Um, I've witnessed it growing up, and this is another reason why it, it drives me insane. He's looking for redemption on such an epic level that he's missing what's right in front of him. He neglects mm -hmm. his family. He's a terrible father. He cheats on his wife. He's a drug addict. He's doing nothing to clean up all of these problems. So instead, he, he's on this mission to seek redemption on this massive scale, which is going about it all wrong because it's all based in self-interest. 
which basically does away with any good that would have come from it. Right. Which is, which is literally biblical text if you want to get down to it. So it, it's really insane to me that all this is ignored. And, and I think, you know what I mean when I say like, I'm sure you saw that as well growing up the way we did. Like when you're trying to do these grand gestures or these grand things for, for forgiveness or for some type of, or for some type of Christian Catholic, it doesn't matter. It's all the same progress or, or big thing. And it's like, well, you're neglecting what's right in front of you. Children, wife, bills, life in general. Right. And that's really what drives me insane about his character, which I know is the point of it. But I mean, we're addressing it from a, from, from a logical perspective. So that's where my brain goes. Yeah, Yeah. No, I think that's, you know, it's like, um, you know, the phrase that I'm sure you heard this phrase growing up a thousand times, just like I did. It's, you know, which I, I actually think this is pretty profound, which is it's easier to it's easier to die for God than it is to live for him. And oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's pretty profound because it's yeah, it's like easy to do like the big grand romantic gesture of like imagining that like a Columbine. I used to do this when I was younger, imagining like a Columbine shooter like, you know, coming into school and being like, do you believe in God? And I'll be like, I believe in God. And then just getting gunned down, you know, like, like that type of, like that type of things, <laughs> that shit's easy to do. You know why it's easy to do? Cause it's probably never going to happen, you know, but like the hard thing to do is to do the day in and day out, you know, Bible reading and prayer that you're supposed to be doing. And I think it's the, um, I think you're dead on about that. It's the guy who, takes his wife on vacation because he cheated because he cheated on her <laughs> you know like of course actually in this case it's that's best case scenario what Kaitel's thing was actually Kaitel's scenario is well i cheated on my wife now i'm gonna mercy kill her and that'll be my act of redemption it's like wait what <laughs> yeah i'm also gonna kill my two kids um <laughs> yeah i um I mean, you know, that's, I, that's actually a Greek tragedy. It's, I mean, it, like speaking of the word tragedy, like that's, um, I can't remember who it is. I think it's, it's not Electra. It's, uh, uh, God damn it. Uh, Jason's wife, Medea. That's who it is. It's Medea. She's like, like Tyler Perry. <laughs> yeah. Tyler Perry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tyler Perry's Medea. Uh, no, it's Medea. She's married to Jason, uh, from Jason and the Argonauts. And uh, she's like, my husband is cruel and mean to me so i know what i'll do i'll kill our kids to get back at him and like like it's not a bad plan (laughs) what's so funny that like literally we're using the word tragedy and like that is the original root of tragedy right greek tragedy like you you were trying to fix a problem and instead of fixing the problem you make that same problem worse and that's literally what he does in this fucking movie and it's it, it is truly tragic you know? Yeah. And I mean, I I think, you know, everything we're discussing, like it stems same thing with the, with what you, with the quote you said, and same thing with us basically talking about what we witnessed growing up. It all stems from this romantic idea Mm -hmm. of, of dying in this glorious redemptive way. Like you just literally said with, with the Columbine thing, Mm. like it's just, it's just this romantic idea, and that's what he had built in his built up in his head because he was so far gone at this point. Um, right, right. So. I mean, yeah, he's a romantic. He he wants to live hard and die hard and act in a act. I mean, it's the it's the Travis like you said, it's the Travis Bickle thing too. It's like 
no, I'm I, I'm God's lonely man, but I'm going to go out in a blaze of glory. It's a, it's a romantic idea. And it's like, Jesus, man, can you just like live life, you know, like, which I guess the, yeah, can you just like be a cop and, and make the street <laughs> safer? Like you fucking took an oath to do like, <laughs> which, which, which of course the answer is no. The answer is that, 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 that shit is too boring for him. That's why he was doing heroin and, you know, uh, assaulting young girls and cars and shit to begin with. It's, um, God damn. See, see, it's, th- this is why I think bad Lieutenant, uh, I preferred bad Lieutenant. Cause I, I think bad Lieutenant is a full blown, just balls out masterpiece. Whereas like King of New York, I was like, man, I love that movie, but it like, I don't know, man, there's something about bad Lieutenant that feels like it feels like metaphysical and cosmic. Like it's like La Strada or something. It's, it's just really good. Well, uh, we have another appearance from Victor Argo in this movie. And we have mm. another appearance from Paul Calderon in this movie. Okay. Don't um, know who either of those guys are, but yeah. Victor Argo played the cop that had the standoff with him in the subway in King of New York. Oh, right, right, he right. Also, yeah, yeah, he yeah. also played a cop in this movie. And Paul Calderon played a cop in this movie, but he also played the guy that betrayed Frank in King of New York. Okay. Um, oh, Yeah. That, that, yeah. Both of those guys, I recognize their faces, but I didn't know their names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um Yeah, I don't know, man. I I you know, I'm glad we were able to talk about Ferrara. I don't think he gets enough credit. It's hard to really fight for it too much given his recent work, but I think the man comes from a from a time of filmmaking that I just you know, speaking of romanticizing, I feel like I romanticize this in my head. This is from a time in movie history that we'll never get back. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll never get movie making back the way it existed when when Cassavetes and Scorsese and and Coppola and Ferrara and these guys were running around making movies with De Niro and Keitel and Gene Hackman. Like we'll net we'll never have these days again. Um, for many reasons, obviously, because they're all old now. Um, but, uh, we will, <laughs> we will never get it back in the, in the, in the figurative sense that I'm describing, I should say. So it yeah, was, uh, it's, um, yeah. yeah, it's really, it's really, a uh, I mean, you know, it's just, these movies, these movies are little miracles, man. Um, and what, what I would have loved to do is just, I mean, I don't know if this is future programming or not. I'd love to knock out like three or four of his, like, lesser known genre movies and kind of like just do like a quick hit on which ones are worth watching and you know that kind of thing uh, might be fun but uh, well as a as a closeout real quick um i'm gonna tell you what uh bfi considers his uh top 10 essential films okay I'm gonna run through miss mm. 45 i've seen it it's interesting it is a rape. That's the rape revenge movie I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fear City, which is weird, um, but it's worth a watch. King okay. of New York, obviously. Bad Lieutenant, obviously. Dangerous Game, another cartel or cartel movie. It's all right. The Addiction, which is a weird kind of art vampire film, dare I say, starring the great Lily Taylor. Um, it's bizarre, but it's worth a watch. Also came out in the nineties. Mm-hmm. New Rose Hotel, Mulberry Street, four forty four, Last Day on Earth, starring the great Willem Dafoe, and then to close off the list, Welcome to New York, which is from two thousand fourteen. 
Um, yeah, I gotta get on this. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta finish out my uh, uh, Abel Ferrara uh, filmography. Well, that last one is a little bit of a little bit of a Shakespeare thing going on with Gerard uh, Depardieu. You know, it was rumored that dude drank like ten bottles of wine a day. Yeah, doesn't he play Dominique Strauss-Kahn? Uh, I think so. Yeah, the guy. Yes, who, he plays uh, Dominique Strauss-Kahn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy who assaulted the uh, maid in a New York City yeah. hotel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I got to get on that. Ten bottles of wine a day, huh? That's what I heard. I don't know if I believe that. I mean, that's a lot, dude. That's like that's a lot of wine. It's a lot of wine. Yeah. Well, either uh, way. Um. Yeah, this was fun. I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you have not seen either of these two movies, obviously we highly recommend them. If you venture into the Ferrara rabbit hole of films, do not blame us if you do not like it. We are not vouching for anything else at this point. Especially if you watch some of his exploitative stuff from the 70s. Shit gets weird. So Yeah, I would even say Bad Lieutenant, honestly. like If, if, if the type of shit we talked about in this movie doesn't sound... Uh you know, like something you're interested in watching, you know, definitely don't because that's, uh, it's, it's there and it's explicit and it's, you know, it's, it's commented on, reflected on and is the point. So yeah, I mean, that's, uh, it can be upsetting, honestly. Yeah, 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 yeah. No joke. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah, I think we did Ferrara justice. Hopefully, um, this will, will be what turns the tides to get him to come on the show. If you're Mm. listening uh, Abel, it would be nice to talk to you. Um, yeah. So come on. Anyway, Abel, what are you doing, pal? Yeah. While you're hanging out in Italy, doing much more fun, cool shit than come on our podcast. Come on our podcast. Yeah. And bring um, your buddy Defoe on too. We want to talk yeah, to him. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great talk to both of you guys. Um, anyway, um, aside from that, if you want to hear more, uh, movie banter, uh, and just bullshit, honestly, from us, Jacob, where can they go? Patreon.com slash silver screen video. I'm not going to tell you what you can get on there. You can go to the website. You can look for yourself. Bonus content, support the podcast. We got all kinds of shit. Patreon.com slash silver screen video. Well, I'll tell you. Silver small screen video. We're talking about Mad Men. Silver screen video after dark. We bullshit about stuff we're watching that's not podcast related. You can support the pod, like Jacob said, help us keep the lights on. You can even pay us to watch something awful, which I don't really want you to do. But if you need, if you feel the need to do it, go ahead. Yeah, we'll do it. We're a little whores. We'll do anything for money. Well, I mean, I wouldn't say that. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, do you have anything to add before we wrap up this episode? I do not. Guys, hope you enjoyed this. Thanks for stopping by the Silver Screen video, and we will see you next week. <laughs> Thank you.